Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Do I want to live forever? I think I want the option. Thank goodness I come from Harvard Medical School, or what I'm going to tell you tonight, you would find extremely difficult to believe is true. Will everyone have that choice, or will only certain people who have access to money, to social and political connections, will they be the only ones to have the choice? The story of not having to age is literally as old as history. Today on Darts and Letters, life extension therapies, technology that could give us the ability to live forever. Maybe. From Sighted Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Jay Coburn. One of the really fun things about being human is that we know we're going to die. But one of the oldest tales in history is the Fountain of Youth. I'm 33 now, and while I'm still pretty young, I've got the occasional grey hair, my back hurts, I have tinnitus constantly ringing away in my ears, and I'm beginning to feel the effects of growing older. And frankly, it would be nice if I had the wisdom of my age without the physical degradation. So when I see news stories like this... Scientists have rejuvenated the skin cells taken from a 53-year-old woman, making them equivalent to those of a 23-year-old. Writing in the... The elixir of youth might not be a thing of fiction anymore, as Harvard scientists have moved one step closer to developing anti-aging drugs. A landmark experiment has given... That's a pretty seductive story. Science is going to cure the ultimate disease, death. Maybe. That's the claim that some scientists are making. Other scientists are less optimistic. I think there is a great deal of anxiety about impermanence and death, and that's why the story about the microbians bathing in these magical waters was such a great story. This is Dr. Charles Brenner, one of the biggest critics of longevity science, despite being the person who made one of its foundational breakthroughs. I just want to remind people the Fountain of Youth story is thousands of years old and was not evidence-based. We'll speak to Dr. Brenner at length later. There's probably not one easy hack to longevity. This kind of science does attract a lot of hype. For obvious reasons, it is potentially earth-shattering in scope. But I'm not the right person to tell you what's hype and what's real. I'm not a scientist. My BSc was in sound engineering. But one thing I do know is that there are billions and billions of dollars being poured into this research. Two of the biggest funders are actually Jeff Bezos and Google's Larry Page. 
funding research into an expensive experimental medical intervention when we still have large swathes of the population without access to basic health care. So today on Darts and Letters, I'm going to do my best to explore the science and the ethics of life extension and longevity science from every angle. I'm going to talk to a pioneer, Liz Parrish, the first person to undergo a form of gene therapy to reverse her biological age. I feel like kind of I've already stepped into the future and that everybody else is living in the past because I am a GMO now. Then I'll dig through the fantastical world of miracle molecules and dietary supplements that some scientists are getting rich off of. You're also taking metformin? Yes. How much? When? Uh, I take 800 milligrams at night. Dr. Charles Brenner, who we heard from a little earlier, will be here to critique that space and give his view on the science involved. Then we get on to the bigger questions, the sci-fi stuff. Should we be trying to live forever? Is this the right way to spend research dollars? And how do we manage a future where humans could stick around for a lot longer than they do right now? Do you ever see this sort of images where there's a fishing pole and it has maybe a $100 bill and it's attached to it and it's hanging over someone's head who really wants that money? I can kind of see that happening with this kind of lifespan technology. I'll have a conversation with Dr. Keisha Ray, a bioethicist, about the ethics of life extension technologies. Before we get on to all that, though, let's go through the basics of the science. What you're doing here, genetic power is the most awesome force the planet's ever seen, but you wield it like a, a kid that's found his dad's gun. Myself and Jeff Goldblum will do that after the break. Yeah, yeah but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they just don't think they should. You're listening to Darts and Letters. I'm Jay Coburn. If you're new to the show, hello, welcome. Thank you for joining us. We're a podcast about the politics of ideas, of science and academia. We're also independent and always scrabbling to fund the show. And I could ask you to donate to our Patreon here, but I know that costs money. So what I'm actually going to say is hit the subscribe button, share the show with a friend who might be interested. The more people that listen, the easier it is to get that funding and to keep the show going. There's a lot of scientific language that floats around this space, so I think it's a good idea at this point to do a quick rundown of some of the science. This is by no means everything, but it is the foundational stuff that you'll hear mentioned a lot. If you want to dig deeper, there's tons of stuff online and in peer-reviewed journals as well. This is just a jumping off point. There's a landmark paper from 2013 called The Hallmarks of Aging. It was published in the journal Cell with authors from a bunch of universities, including University College London and Universidad de Oviedo in Spain. That paper identified nine hallmarks of aging. These nine are defined as things that manifest during normal aging, and in experiments, aggravating them speeds up the aging process, whereas remedying them should slow down or reverse aging. So aging isn't governed by any one thing. Human bodies are incredibly complex organisms. This paper alone suggests nine specific hallmarks, and it's just one paper. Let's talk about two of those hallmarks, the ones that come up the most often. First, senescence, specifically cellular senescence. The word senescence itself basically just means aging, but in our cells, senescence refers to a specific point in the life cycle. A senescent cell has stopped dividing. 
A normal human cell can only replicate and divide 40 to 60 times before it breaks down and eventually dies. That's called the Hayflick limit after the guy who discovered it. As we grow older, more of our cells become senescent, so our bodies stop repairing themselves. That's one way we age. So you're thinking, okay, if we break the Hayflick's limit, we can fix that part of aging. But that's tricky. Cells that replicate uncontrollably have another name. Cancer. The next hallmark is telomere attrition. Telomeres are these caps on the ends of our chromosomes. You know, XX, XY. Basically, telomeres are junk DNA whose only function is to protect the rest of the chromosome. When a cell divides, these telomeres get shorter. When the telomeres run out, the cell becomes senescent. There is an enzyme that's been proven to rebuild telomeres, the little caps. That enzyme is called telomerase. It's found in high levels in stem cells, and it's also found in high levels in cancer cells. So, the theory goes, if we can use telomerase in the right way, we can lengthen our telomeres and stave off cellular senescence. That's two of the nine hallmarks of aging dealt with. My name is Liz Parrish. I'm the CEO of a company called BioViva, and we are trying to democratize genetic therapies that will reverse biological aging and help people live longer, healthier lives. Telomerase is made up of two core components, one of which is called telomerase reverse transcriptase. And in 2015, Liz Parrish became the first person to undergo a gene therapy using that and another protein called folostatin, which has been shown to increase muscle mass. Liz seemed a little more grounded to me than other longevity entrepreneurs. She's not hawking expensive supplements on YouTube, but she does still make some pretty grand claims about where the science can go. And she clearly believes in what she's doing. At least she's experimenting on her own body. But she didn't do the therapy in the US, where she and her company are based. And this wasn't an FDA-approved trial. Liz went offshore to Colombia. So I started by asking her why. When I went to investors trying to find investment for these scientists, they didn't believe that the technology would work. There was no human evidence that it would work. And it cost $2.6 billion to get a drug passed through the US FDA. So you have a very wary audience of this type of technology. You know, anti-aging or regenerative medicine is a 4,000-year-old idea that really hasn't played out very strongly for humans. So there was a lot of skepticism. So I decided in later 2014 that we would start the first company that would actually use these technologies. And I came forward as patient zero for the first test of one gene therapy that had never been in a human before, telomerase reverse transcriptase, that lengthens the caps at the ends of the chromosomes. And another one that had been in humans for muscular dystrophy, a gene called folostatin that has the promise of increasing the muscle mass and helping people with metabolic disorder and frailty as they age. So in 2015, we raised the first funding to do this first test, and we had the gene therapy made. And then I took the gene therapy in September 16th of 2015. In the weeks beforehand, how were you feeling and what were you thinking? I mean, it was pretty surreal. It wasn't 
very exciting and it certainly wasn't very glamorous. I started taking immunosuppressants weeks in advance of the gene therapy. And so I was losing weight and not sleeping very well. There were only, I think, three people who knew that we were going to do it and we didn't know what would happen. I mean, I was kind of, you know, getting my life affairs in order. I mean, we we felt that this would be really positive. And, and at that point, you have to realize a lot of people thought that telomerase reverse transcriptase might cure all of aging. So there was, we were balanced with worry and excitement during that time. Why did you only tell three people? We did not want it to be shut down. We didn't want an advisor coming forward and telling the regulatory system or, or contacting someone who would stop the test. I didn't want my family to know because I didn't want anyone to worry. I mean, if you told anyone that you cared about that you were about to do an experimental medicine, they would probably say, don't do it. And I was very, very convicted that I would do it. Were you scared though? Were we scared? I mean, I was dealing with a, a child with a chronic disease and the promise that we may be able to change history and make a healthier world for people. So everything was balanced out. But what we did is instead of taking the gene therapy intravenously as a patient would take it, I had it injected into over like 100 shots into my body into high cancer risk areas. I mean, we actually taunted the gene therapy. It was important to me that if we were really going to move forward with this, that we made sure that it wasn't going to cause cancer in people. Now that's an N equals one. So there's no guarantee from an N equals one, but we did the most that we could to taunt the gene therapy into high risk areas, you know, facial skin, breasts, high sun exposed areas, you know, like a lot of injections into high risk areas. Wow, you're like a proper pincushion. Um. <laughs> I I looked like um, I looked like I actually had um, hives or something after, but they were injection sites. So these injections, can you, in real basic terms, tell me what you're being injected with, and then what happens once it gets into your body? Right. So um, thousands of people have actually gone through gene therapy now for different disease states. And gene therapy is a it's a very uh, beautiful technology. So viruses over time have injected their genetic material into humans. Some of those like retroviruses integrate into our genome. And this happens to people regularly throughout their lifespan. But in the case of gene therapy, what we do is we take a viral vector and we attenuate it, meaning it cannot get you sick. We take out its genetic payload and we replace it with therapeutic genes. So it's a beautiful system where a virus that once might have been harmful delivers healthy and therapeutic genes to your cells. And today there are several approved gene therapies, some for rare forms of blindness, hemophilia B, lipoprotein lipase deficiency and severe combined immune deficiency, oh, and spinal muscular atrophy. And so the proof of concept is there that it works and we're using it with genes that make cells behave more youthfully uh, to treat aging. Were there any immediate side effects? Like, did you feel anything? No, no. And, and I think that this is what's really interesting about gene therapy is, you know, we're used to medicine today that has a lot of side effects. 
gene therapy, we are just delivering the protein that you need to be healthier. And there's no like immediate effect from it. The only discomfort around gene therapy that I have personally had is around the immunosuppression that happens before and after the therapy. So what were the physical effects in the longer term? I guess thinking of the parts of myself that have started to decline my skin, I've got some gray hair, my knees kind of suck. Um, I've got tinnitus, you know, like all kinds of things happening to me as I age. Have things like that started to reverse with you? And how, like, walk me through after you had the therapy, you head home, what happens to you? Right. Well, for a few weeks, I'm on immune suppression and I'm getting off of the immune suppression. And I'm, I was worried because I didn't feel very great during that time. And I didn't know what was expected. And I know I had a lot of waking up to pounding heartbeat and, you know, being worried and going, oh my gosh, what's happening here. But once I got off the immune suppression, I just started to feel really good. I was able to gain muscle mass. There was one thing that we didn't measure. I used to get a lot of kidney pain, especially if I didn't drink enough water. But again, this is all very anecdotal, not proven. I don't have that anymore. I don't know. I could just say that I felt good. I mean, I wasn't in terrible health to begin with. This was a, a prophylactic therapy testing to make sure that it wouldn't make us sick. So this is where we get to the FDA. And you personally had to go offshore to get the gene therapy. You went to Colombia, I believe. Mm -hmm. The therapy's not FDA approved. How do you feel about that? That's the thing is we, we need to treat people like the intelligent beings that they are. We need a pathway for people to get access to new and innovative technology. Innovative technology is more difficult to get into the US FDA because it's new and, and less known. It doesn't mean that they won't come without risk to certain people. We don't know, but we know across the board of the data that our company has looked at, there have not been negative effects to these gene therapies. I get the sense that you don't think the FDA is doing right by Americans. We have to be careful how we word that. Right. The last thing that we want is a battle with the US FDA. What we want to do is help the US FDA. Right now, I believe that in the regenerative medicine space, we have enough technology to keep some people alive who are end of life care. And we have the technology to prophylactically help people live healthier and longer. We don't have a cure for aging yet. But we do have enough technology to start. And I do believe that not using this technology puts yourself at risk of being responsible for maybe millions of deaths. So I believe that at this point in history, we need to use this technology, at least, at least in terminally ill patients, to see if it can give them the benefit of health and move the technology back as quickly as possible to younger ages as a prophylactic against these diseases that predominantly kill us. So I do believe that it's time to stand up and allow people to have the dignity to try new medicine. I guess the obvious pushback 
And probably what the FDA would say is that they're ensuring that therapies are safe before rolling them out broadly. And the, the example that springs into mind as a Brit is thalidomide, because that was approved in the UK and the rest of Europe. And it was given to pregnant mothers for, I think, morning sickness. And that caused thousands of children to be born with birth defects. But the FDA didn't approve it in the US. And that didn't happen there. So could you not just argue they're ex exercising proper caution? There is really no such thing as a safe drug. So a good thing to do is to go to the Cochrane report and see the number uh, of harm and the number of benefit from some of the, the top drugs. It, it doesn't make a drug safe, that a drug goes through the regulatory system. And another good thing to look up is the top 10 most dangerous drugs that were approved. There are some pretty bad drugs that were approved all the way through the regulatory system and then pulled off the market for a vast number of deaths that occurred. So I think that most of us know that our drugs are not necessarily safe, right? So should you stop taking your drugs? No, you, you should not do that, but, but you should not lie to yourself. Let's talk about access then, because I think the big question really is around access in the future, because if we can ensure the therapies are democratized and freely available and people can make an informed choice about the risks they might be taking, that removes a lot of the ethical problems that might otherwise arise. A question that I really I feel like I have to ask you is, from BioViva's point of view, are you looking to hold on to the patent for telomerase therapy or do you have patents for these therapies or would you sort of make it open source? So we have a patent for a, the dual gene therapy that I took. We have another pending for clotho and telomerase reverse transcriptase for dementia. And then we have a whole class of patents, patent pending for our CMV delivery method. The whole idea and premise behind our company is to make licensing as simple as possible and make sure that people can use these technologies. So we are making sure that the door stays open and that if we patent it, that other regenerative medicine companies have access to that technology and they cannot be shut out. I've definitely encountered in the process of making this show people who are genuinely very skeptical. I mentioned I was making this to a friend and she was like, no, no, it's all nonsense. It doesn't exist. It's all science fiction. And I've definitely spoken to some people who would say, why are we spending all this money on that when the best way to raise the life expectancy of society as a whole might be to spend that money on, say, housing the homeless or um, providing food to people? What would you say to that argument? <laughs> I mean, it, 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 it's just not. The, the best way to extend human healthy lifespan is to target aging. So we've all agreed that we want to cure things like heart disease and cancer. But did you know that if we just cured cancer today, we cured all of it, the average person would only live two to four years longer. And that's because the aging cell is driving cancer, but it's driving heart disease, it's driving organ failure, it's driving dementia. And so in order to eradicate all of the diseases that we have desired to, in which you know billions of dollars are put behind, we have to stop batting at the symptoms of those disease and start to treat the aging cell. As far as people who don't believe that we are to the point in the regenerative medicine space that we can start having an impact on human health, it's just because they 
they don't, they haven't read the science. They haven't been exposed to what's actually happening in science today. The easiest thing to do is when you sit down, you hear something new is to discredit it because you sound like the smartest person in the room, because it's a lot harder to go and read all the papers and understand what's happening. So the technology is at the point of starting. Uh, We cannot cure all of aging. It is the biggest impact that we could possibly have. And we owe it to future generations to not leave them with the same diseases that we have been dying with. Well, that's all the very important questions, but I have some more fun ones now. Okay. Uh, Do you want to live forever? Do I want to live forever? I think I want the option. And the reason that I say that is when I first started looking for cures for kids and I ran into the aging research, it seemed really vain. I couldn't initially connect with it. But what I realized is, and especially after, you know, seeing elderly people die in my life, a healthy person has a million dreams. A sick person has one. And I've never met someone with a diagnosis who didn't want to live. And so I can assume that if today I want to live in a hundred years from now, I will want to live as well, as long as I am healthy and fully functioning. And if we were able to deliver that for humans, that that's the game changer. If you're healthy and you feel well, we don't want people to be old and sick longer. If we're able to deliver on that promise, I believe that people will want to live for a very long time, but that they should have the choice and I have should have the choice. I believe that we should have the choice whether we want to live or we want to die. That was Liz Parrish, CEO of BioViva and the first person to undergo telomerase reverse transcriptase therapy. Liz's harshest critics have called her work pseudoscience. Telomerase reverse transcriptase remains unproven as a life extension therapy in humans. But Liz Parrish and BioViva are certainly trying to change that. Right now, though, you can't go to BioViva's website and book this therapy. And when there's supply without demand, someone's going to step in to fill the gap. If you search for telomere lengthening online, then you get a bunch of expensive supplements that promise to rebuild your aging cells. The anti-aging industry is big business, with celebrity endorsements and quirky profiles in Bloomberg and Fortune. Could a pill called metformin that's been used to treat type 2 diabetes for 60 years also be a key to the fountain of youth? In the longevity subreddit, users share articles about metformin. So the idea is whether or not this pill can slow down or reverse some of the damage caused by aging. It's one of the most commonly prescribed drugs in the U.S. because it's used to treat diabetes. But in one study, the diabetic patients taking metformin had a lower mortality rate than the control group of non-diabetics not taking metformin. The thought is that by preventing age-related changes to your body's cells, metformin could help people live healthier longer, increasing their health expectancy. Now, Silicon Valley tech types and biohackers are taking the pill daily, regardless of whether they have diabetes. Sam Altman, the CEO behind ChatGPT, is one of them. He's bankrolled a startup called Retro Biosciences with $180 million. So I'm on caloric restriction, uh, 1,977 calories a day or thereabouts. Then there's this guy who seems to have turned his own longevity into a full-time job. So I've lost some fat in my face. I mean, really what we're trying to do is I've got uh, two boys, 19, 17, 
and were trying to make me biologically identical to them. So that if you were to put me... Brian Johnson spends $2 million a year on Project Blueprint. That's what he calls his anti-aging regime that employs 30 doctors and makes use of a really strict lifestyle. He eats exactly 1,977 calories a day, has a strict sleep pattern, and undergoes regular surgical procedures in an attempt to make himself younger. To frame this as, uh, what if there was such a thing as a professional rejuvenation athlete, what would the person's daily life look like? He claims he's reduced his biological age by five years. I'm not really sure what that means. You might have noticed Harvard has been mentioned a couple of times in this episode. That's because Harvard Medical School is the home of the Sinclair Lab. David Sinclair is the celebrity scientist when it comes to life extension. He's written a best-selling book called Lifespan, Why We Age and Why We Don't Have To. Welcome to the Lifespan Podcast, where we discuss the science of aging and how to be healthier at any stage of life. I'm David Sinclair, and I'm a professor of genetics at Harvard Medical School, and I'm the co-director of the- His YouTube channel has a quarter of a million subscribers alone, and he's given this TED talk. So I stand here as a representative of a field called aging science, longevity science, some people call it anti-aging. We don't use that as scientists. But what has happened in the last 25 years is nothing short of revolutionary. And thank goodness I come from Harvard Medical School, or what I'm going to tell you tonight you would find extremely difficult to believe is true. I'm on record saying that the first person to live to 150 years has already been born. I said that about five years ago. And in the last five years, something extraordinary has happened since, making me think that it's not just 150 years, all bets are off. For me, Sinclair is the longevity space personified. He made his name in the early 2000s when he and his team at Harvard figured out a way to make yeast live longer. Here he is on Joe Rogan explaining that. About 20 years ago, uh, Lenny Garanti and a team of us at MIT discovered a set of genes that controls aging in yeast cells, just brewer's yeast, what you find in beer and bread. And those genes are called sirtuins, and there are seven of them in our bodies, five in yeast. And what they do is they protect all organisms on the planet, plants, bacteria, humans, from deterioration and disease. They're like the Pentagon. They sense when we're hungry, sense when we're exercising, and they send out the troops to defend us. So when you, when you put more of these genes into a yeast cell or, or a mouse, they'll live longer. And so we think that these genes are responsible for the effects of dieting and exercise, which is great. Which, what that means is we can now mimic that with molecules. So NMN is one of those molecules. So is resveratrol. I've heard of resveratrol, but yeah. is NMN a new molecule? Is this commercially available? Uh, some people have started selling it on the internet. Um, the fucking internet. It's related to uh, NR, which is sold by a bunch of companies. Oh. NR. Yeah, nicotinamide riboside is a supplement that raises the levels of a molecule called NAD. I feel like I should make a shopping list. <laughs> Get a pen. So why, why are you writing that down, Joe? Sinclair goes on explaining the science behind a bunch of molecules, NAD, NMN, resveratrol, NR, before telling Rogan about his own regimen. Mice or even to worms or yeast, they live longer and they're super healthy. How many milligrams are you taking of these things? 
So I take a gram of NMN in the morning based on clinical You can kind of hear in this one clip how David Sinclair went from finding a mechanism to make a very simple organism, yeast, live longer, to taking supplements daily. And you can bet that longevity forums and subreddits took note of that molecule name and dosage. So after he discovered the yeast thing, in 2004, Sinclair and a team of entrepreneurs founded a company called Sertrus to investigate more. They were specifically focused on resveratrol, which Sinclair has called as close to a miraculous molecule as you can find. It occurs naturally in red wine, so it got a lot of press. Sertrus was bought by GlaxoSmithKline for $720 million in 2007. A few years later, GSK closed Sertrus down due to a lack of results. You can still buy resveratrol online though, and it isn't cheap. Whether it does anything is up for debate. In 2019, David Sinclair's book Lifespan, Why We Age and Why We Don't Have To was published. It became a bestseller, and while he never actually recommends you take supplements like NMN and resveratrol, he does provide a lot of details on his own regimen. To someone who wants to live a long life, that's pretty tempting. Honestly, even I'm kind of tempted by a lot of this stuff. So to bring me back down to earth, I spoke to Dr. Charles Brenner. Fundamentally, what I work on is NAD, the central catalyst of metabolism. They literally carry high energy electrons from food to convert everything that we eat into everything that we are and everything that we do. Dr. Brenner was there at the beginning of David Sinclair's career working on similar stuff, namely yeast. So Brenner and Sinclair started in similar places, but I found out about Sinclair from YouTube videos and TED Talks, whereas I found out about Dr. Brenner when I read an article he published called A Science-Based Review of the World's Best-Selling Book on Aging. It's basically a takedown of David Sinclair's book. I've been sort of longevity adjacent for 20-some years. I discovered the vitamin activity of nicotinamide riboside, an NAD precursor which has been commercialized. I don't claim that NR, nicotinamide riboside, is a longevity drug. I do think that it boosts resiliency and repair, but I follow the people in the longevity space very carefully, and I try to dissect what is evidence-based and what's not. I'm interviewing you because you're pretty publicly critical of a lot of people in the longevity field. So maybe to help me and the listeners of the show out, let's get started with kind of a general overview. I'm not a scientist. I want to figure out what science I can trust. So how do I know what science and what is hype? Like say I'm looking at an article and I want to know if it's real and I can trust it. Where do I start? Yeah, let's try to do some level setting here. First of all, I'm a person that trained using yeast molecular biology. So I'm not anti-yeast, <laughs> but it is an astounding leap of hype to claim that longevity genes found in yeast are conserved as longevity genes in animals and that we know this, the genes that will extend your lifespan because we identified them in yeast and all you have to do is have more copies of them or find activators of them, and then you don't have to age. That is not remotely fact-based. Animal aging is highly polygenic, Jay, which means that it's not just one or two genes that control 
our lifespan, it's thousands of genes because animal life requires a brain and musculature and respiratory system and digestive system that requires thousands of different genes. And you don't get longevity by having extra copies of any one gene. The claims that people have reversed aging in animals are way overhyped. They have only reversed what are called the epigenetic age scores of animals. They have not been shown to extend lifespan in any peer-reviewed paper. And so there's, a, there's really a big problem in science communications right now because people are out there claiming that you don't have to age and that they've reversed their own age and they, they reversed mouse age and none of that is evidence-based. So the, the SCICOMS aspect of, of aging is quite terrible and it's a hazard to the field and it's a hazard to consumers that are trying to read about this stuff such that I would almost say as a blanket statement that you should approach it all with disbelief rather than with very much hope that there has been a breakthrough. So are you a complete pessimist when it comes to anti-aging or life extension therapies then? Do you fully believe that this is not a thing that humans can unlock? No, there's a demonstrated historical lifespan extension that occurred in the 20th century. And so by um, improving the water systems and vaccination and getting people cleaner air and less contaminated food, we extended human lifespan by quite a lot. There's also pretty strong evidence that every animal has encoded in its gene set a maximal lifespan that appears to be around 120 years for humans. I believe that we have the ability to get more people living healthy lives into their 90s and hundreds and a bit beyond that. I believe that it's possible to promote resiliency and repair into our 80s and beyond, and that those things are perfectly reasonable goals. Lifespan extension is asking for something quite a bit beyond that. I'm not sure how optimistic we can be about that. Is there any work in this space that you would say is like solid, good science that people can look to as, as hope that we might be able to extend our natural lifespans? There are people that are working on whether they could turn down growth hormone pathways when we're older as a potential way to extend lifespan. Like growth hormone was important to get up to sexual maturation and adulthood, but is maybe deleterious later in life. I think that that's logical, but um, there are also human data that suggests that that may not really promote fitness. So I don't know that I can be particularly optimistic about any human 
intervention as causing lifespan extension. Although I do think that maintaining high NAD levels and potentially modulating some of these hormones can maintain our, our fitness and our resiliency. So it's complicated and I don't like, I don't want to be interpreted as saying that you can extend your lifespan with these things, but I think that you can potentially extend a period of fitness. The kind of obvious pushback from the scientists who are in this space would be that, well, nothing's proven until we prove it, right? And mm -hmm. you know, the way a lot of science is done is you fund the moonshots and the stuff that might look like it's gonna go nowhere, and then it kind of comes out of nowhere because you funded a bunch of different things and randomly someone will have a big breakthrough what would you say to that argument? I strongly support funding foundational science. There's a sense in which the reward structure has been built too much around hype and things that are not fundamentally deliverable. And there are things that are falsely premised that have been very well funded, unfortunately. Stuff that has been funded for sirtuins as dominantly acting longevity genes has not advanced the field of longevity at all. In fact, it's wasted billions of dollars, maybe in the tens of billions of dollars. So I think that we have to be cautious and you know, it would be good for funding agencies to ask people what they've actually learned and what they have found that isn't true. Right. So, you know, could we get the people that were talking about telomerase 30 some years ago as something that if all we have to do is activate telomerase and we can reverse all of these diseases of aging and we can stop the aging process at our caprice? Could we go back to, to, to those folks and say, okay, so why did you think that was the case? And what did, did what did we learn along the way about? cancer and, and other things. And I think that we should just be open to falsifiability and criticism and realize that breakthroughs, well, yeah, breakthrough could be around the corner for some from something unanticipated. There's a long track record of overstatement and just storytelling in this space. One man who's received a lot of those dollars is David Sinclair. And I found you through your science-based review of David Sinclair's book, Lifespan. How did you first find out about David Sinclair? I've known um, David Sinclair since the mid-2000s. So he was interested in sirtuins when I was discovering unknown genes and enzymes in NAD biosynthesis. And so I was invited to consult for Sertris, which he started, met with him many times. He invited me to Harvard. I spoke, you know, at Harvard Medical School on his invitation. And uh, I was actually the senior author of the first paper showing that NR can extend lifespan in yeast. So I'm not, you know, fundamentally, you know, opposed to kind of the work that he launched his, his laboratory with. However, while I was consulting for Sertris, 
what I observed firsthand by being on the scientific advisory board is that there was a huge disconnect between what you could prove, you know, in a laboratory and what David was willing to say to people and particularly the investment community and the general public. So basically David has constructed a story. He's resisted falsifiability on it and it's not evidence-based. Let's move on to Liz Parrish, who I interviewed a couple of weeks ago. First woman to undergo telomerase reverse transcriptase gene therapy. It's seven years since her first gene therapy, which was telomerase reverse transcriptase combined with, I think it was fullerstatin. And I haven't seen the raw data, but she's not dead for a start. She says her telomeres have lengthened, her muscle mass is up. After doing another gene therapy to supposedly improve cognition, she says she scores better on IQ tests. I'll say she was pretty convincing and was very good at saying what was anecdotal evidence and what was data. So she was quite clear about that with me. What's to say there isn't something real happening there? And moreover, what's to say that at least it's not dangerous what she's done to herself? The problem is we're not even going to find out whether it's dangerous because as I understand it, they don't like US FDA regulations and they do these gene therapy trials, you know, in unregulated locations, and they're not doing placebo-controlled trials. And so they're just basically generating, you know, anecdotes. So if people get tumors, you know, or other type of serious adverse events, it won't be entirely possible to attribute to the interventions, just as it's not possible to attribute her hair condition and her cognitive abilities to the interventions that she's taken. I think what she would say to that is that she would love to do it under the FDA and to have stayed in the USA to do the treatment, but it costs far too much money and it's far too long. And she says she's doing this for people with illnesses like her diabetic son who can't afford to wait because a lot of these gene therapies also apply to aging related diseases, which are things like diabetes and other things. So rather than having to wait and having to raise $2.6 billion or whatever the figure might be to get it through the FDA, she just decided, I don't have the time. I'm just going to go offshore and do this and be the proof. What would you say to that? I would kind of hope for the best, but I can't be too encouraging about this. I would like to see, you know, waste and bureaucratic delays, you know, wrung out of the system and for clinical testing and clinical proof of concepts to be more affordable. But I don't think that it's going to help people in the long run if we don't have a regulatory apparatus for doing human trials. I do want to talk a bit about this culture that's appeared around life extension therapies. You know, we've already talked about kind of the hype and the people selling supplements in YouTube videos, endless podcasts and best-selling books. Is this just a case of like 
people who were maybe at one point good scientists seeing dollar signs and realizing that they can get investment into a startup and like make a name for themselves, maybe have a best-selling book and get famous. Is it just scientists being seduced by money and fame? There's probably some of that. There's also the supplement industry that works on the basis of stories, right? There's not a lot of evidence basis for some of the things in the supplement aisle, you know, in, in the grocery store or in the drugstore. But there are people that swear by them and there are celebrities that will endorse them and 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 there are some scientists that will be involved in those product launches. I'd like to have kind of a middle ground where I think that scientists should be bringing things to the public that can improve human health. I think that science has done that for hundreds of years. I think that we have the potential to do that in the nutritional space, including the supplement and the drug space. But I'd like people to be more evidence-based when something is introduced into the human diet and that you go through the process in which you really establish what the value proposition is and you don't just make up a story. That was Dr. Charles Brenner, Alfred E. Mann Family Foundation Chair in the Department of Diabetes and Cancer Metabolism at the City of Hope National Medical Center in California. Let's set aside the questions of scientific rigor and whether this science is real and assume for now that it is. This is going to be a bit of a science fiction thought experiment, but I'm into sci-fi, so I'm down. Up until now, we've mostly been talking about whether we could actually extend the human lifespan past its natural end. But like Jeff Goldblum said in Jurassic Park... Your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could that they didn't stop to think if they should. If the technology works, I don't think it can be stopped, nor do I really think it should be. But I do think that with something so incredibly disruptive, there are lots of questions to be asked about how it's used and what the implications are for our society and our planet. So to play this thought experiment out, I called Dr. Keisha Ray. She's a bioethicist and assistant professor with the McGovern Center for Humanities and Ethics at UT Health Houston. She's also a sci-fi fan, so we had a lot of fun with this conversation. We started with that big question. Remember what Liz Parrish said at the start of the episode? Do I want to live forever? I think I want the option. Who will have that choice? Will everyone have that choice? Or will only certain people who have access to money, to the technology, to social and political connections, will they be the only ones to have the choice? And I worry about gaps in life opportunities. I worry about gaps in resources that already exist among classes, races, genders, etc. Will it worsen the gaps that already exist? You've gotten straight on to what my next question was going <laughs> to be, which is that fundamentally, I think this is about access. And healthcare is by no means accessible to everyone right now. In the US, people of color are far less likely to have insurance. In Canada, you need to be a citizen or a permanent resident, really, to get healthcare covered by the government here. So I guess what might it look like if the access to life extension or even, you know, ongoing eternal life is not equitably distributed. I kind of see that 
picture of the technology sort of being dangled over people's head. You ever see this sort of images where there's a fishing pole and it has maybe a hundred dollar bill and it's attached to it and it's hanging over someone's head who really wants it, who really needs that money. I can kind of see that happening with this kind of lifespan technology that it can become a tool that can be wielded against the poor, the disabled, the socially marginalized, because it can be something that everyone wants, but if it requires a lot of money, or even if it just requires knowing the right people, the right connections that a lot of people don't have, that sort of political and social power, if it requires that to get this technology, a lot of people already don't have access to the basic medical technologies, right? We even have access issues with income, with transportation, with housing, these basic entities that contribute to our health. If there's access issues to those things already, and then we add something extra like lifespan technologies, I don't see those access issues becoming any better. It's just going to get worse for some people, but life would get better for the people that already have money and social and political connections. It's so hard to balance what is fundamentally a like a really hopeful technology with our own cynicism that is based on the fact that it's the world around us, right? Like, <laughs> right. And I'd love for there to be a way that we could ensure that it becomes like cheap or free and easily accessible. Do you have any ideas on how we could ensure that like the optimistic version of that future happens? I'm realistic sometimes, right? But I try to be, uh, to think the best of people, right? And so one thing that I would hope is that there would be some commitment from the people who create the technologies, a commitment to making it accessible, a commitment to making it affordable. Now, again, this is very optimistic because companies necessarily need money and want money. And one way to do that is to make things inaccessible because accessibility usually means we have to drop prices, which means less money for people. That's where the the questions from the philosopher side of me come in. Mm. Will that happen? How will that happen? Will they want to do that? Will they say we're taking away free market enterprise? Billions and billions of dollars are being poured into this. Like it's a huge amount of money, a really huge amount of money, like billions from Jeff Bezos, billions from Larry Page from Google. And I've been thinking about sort of individual life expectancy versus, I guess, communal life expectancy and how in the medium term that money could be used to pay for things like housing and healthcare. Those are interventions that already exist and that would, you know, if we use these billions of dollars to house everyone who needed housing, that would raise the life expectancy of humanity as a whole, I think. But I've also been thinking about how that's not really how science works, because you do have to fund the crazy stuff and the moonshots to like make big leaps forward. And you're also never really sure where those big leaps forward are going to come from. So how do you think about that? How do you think about the funding argument? You know, I, I wish that there was a little bit more of a balance because it can be hard to have conversations like this where they're fun and they're interesting, but also given what I do, I can't help but think about how in particularly in America, we have black men who die so much sooner than other members of the population, right? We have low access to housing among black women. We have low access to healthcare among Latinos and indigenous people, right? So I have to balance it with all of the things that this money could do for a particular population, right? 
like, yeah, you know, it's human nature. We have to keep growing. We have to keep progressing. But I wish there was a way to do both. We can't be so entangled with the promise of tomorrow that we forget the promise that we made to the people right here that exists right now, to unhoused people, to the the people who are affected by changing in climate, right? All of these things that if we don't attend to now, there may not be a future where there's all these people who need these lifespan technologies because a natural disaster has wiped them out or a pandemic has wiped them out, right? And so I think there has to be a little bit more of a balance between the now and the future. Now, could gene therapy ever become the standard? I do think so, but I kind of agree that you know, if gene therapy or other similar technologies do become the standard, I wonder if that will take away from how we are trying to treat chronic issues like hypertension, diabetes that are caused by other social problems or at least exacerbated by social problems like discrimination, not having access to healthcare, not having access to education, not having access to social support. And so I just wonder sometimes if we're throwing medicine and technology at the problem when really the solutions are social. Let's move away from the funding and access and say we've solved all of these issues. Everyone in the world has access to near unlimited life. And let's start talking about what that does to us as a species and as a society. What's the first thing that comes to your mind? Can the environment handle that many people for that amount of time? <laughs> Can our climate, our oceans, um, our forests, can we handle that amount of people? And can we feed, house, clothe that many people? I think our capacity for doing all of that, we think it's limited, but I think we can actually, we do have enough food for the people that we have, but people, uh, corporations, that kind of thing, have monopolies on it. So it seems like we can't. So that's why we have starving people, et cetera. So I just wonder, can we support that many people? Yeah, we're doing a pretty terrible job of not cooking everyone on the planet already, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, yeah, it's just going to get hotter. We're just going to have more natural disasters. There'll just be more people displaced, maybe deadlier pandemics. I just wonder, will we kill ourselves off doing all these things when we were trying to live longer? Will we ultimately just end up dying anyway? Oh, God, that's a grim way to put it. It's like we try <laughs> to live longer in the process, killed ourselves and everything else on the planet. Wow. That's I a mean, good book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it is. Oh, no. I mean, but but in that kind of scenario, you start thinking about justifications for sort of more authoritarian controls on the population. And I think controlling things like who does and doesn't get to reproduce is immediately repulsive to most people. Like, we've tried that. It was bad. We've tried it really recently in Canada, and it's still going on in some places. Can you see a situation where, you know, population control, maybe having a license to reproduce becomes more acceptable? I mean, if we're going to live for forever, people are automatically going to say some people should not live for forever, right? There are still eugenicists around. There are still people who believe in eugenics in various ways, because if we're reproducing more, that also means for some people, we're reproducing, reproducing and the people who are living longer are going to be people in populations they don't think should be living longer or should be reproducing, like people with disabilities, certain races, that kind of thing. And so I can see where someone might say, okay, if we're going to live longer, 
let's make sure only some people get to live longer. Let's make sure some people either don't get to live longer or if they are living longer, we don't want them to keep reproducing because we don't want those genes in the population gene pool. So yeah, I could absolutely see trying to put limits on reproduction for those just basic discriminatory reasons, just those basic, some people don't deserve to live and some people don't deserve to reproduce. I've been thinking a lot about, I mean, I think about a lot this uh, this a lot anyway, just because of burnout and being a tired person. But I've been thinking a lot about the nature of rest and ultimately retirement. How do you see rest and retirement being viewed in this kind of society? Yeah, we would have to completely change what retirement means. Because right now, retirement age is at least, I think, practically created in relation to lifespan. But who could retire at 60 if you're living to 1,000? I mean, that seems like you're still technically a baby, right? If 60 compared to, that's like a toddler saying, I'm retired, I'm <laughs> done, I'm in nursery school, this is life for me. And so I don't know what retirement would mean. It would have to be completely, completely refigured. I think we already have messed up views of rest. We think we have to earn rest or I worked so hard this week. I'm going to finally rest on the weekend. Or we think, why is he resting? He didn't even do all that much work. Or why why is she resting? She doesn't even have children, right? So we have all these sort of just messed up ideas about who deserves rest. And so I think if we live for forever, we'd have to work even harder to change the narrative around rest and that everyone needs it and it's something that should be prioritized we already don't do a very good job of that mm. so we would have to completely change the idea of rest and retirement i mean on a practical level if we're taking the optimistic side it maybe creates a good argument for replacing social security with some form of ubi or maybe you know a new deal style jobs guarantee a lot of what we're talking about is this idealism versus non-idealism that we talk about in philosophy, this seeing the world for what is what it is or seeing the world for what it could be. And I tend to be in the see the world for what it is. So like in America, they're trying to get rid of Social Security, right? They're saying, hey, take care of yourself, take care of your own families. And so it's hard for me to think about how we can reform Social Security and those kind of welfare programs if we live for forever, when there are already people who say, we don't even think you should have it now and you die in your 70s. So, um, you know, those kinds of questions are very hard for me to think about. And I think for a lot of people, because again, we've been talking about it, sort of this underlying idea, this entire conversation is how do we talk about the idealism when our current conditions are so non-ideal? When my younger sister turned 30, I did the classic older brother thing of making fun of her, saying like, oh, you're getting old just like I am kind of thing. And she res she just responded in, in her infinite wisdom, not everyone gets to grow old. I'm privileged. And I just felt so dumb because she completely <laughs> turned around the joke I was making and immediately found like the beauty in growing old. And I do think today we find it tough to find beauty in aging and... I wonder whether that would change in any direction if aging becomes optional. Yeah, I think right now there's a sort of, I'd say, minor trend of accepting aging. You're seeing people not dyeing their gray hairs and 
I wouldn't say it's widespread, but I, I've been seeing little instances of people sort of rejecting the I don't want to grow old kind of ideal that we've always had. But I think the dominant culture is still to ward off aging. We still, uh, people are still getting Botox and still wearing makeup and, and still getting hair plugs and hair pieces and, you know, all kinds of things to make themselves appear younger. And so I just... Again, the philosopher me, I have a lot of things that I wonder. I just wonder if you never grow old or you never die and your your lifespan just continues and continues, are you just forced to be okay with aging because you don't have a choice? Right? Did we take away people's ability to really come to grips with aging and growing old and their own mortality? If we take that away from them, are we taking something essential away from the human experience that then completely changes what it means to be human, how we practice, if that's the right word, how we practice humanity. I just wonder, lifespan technology, if it will completely force us to change what it means to live and what it means to be human and what it means to be humans in relation to other humans that are living for forever. That was Dr. Keisha Ray. She's a bioethicist and assistant professor with the McGovern Center for Humanities and Ethics at UT Health Houston. That's it for this episode of Darts and Letters. We're a production of Cited Media and we're produced by me, Jay Coburn, Mark Apollonio and Ren Bangert. Our editor and the usual host is Gordon Katick. Our theme song and outro is composed by Mike Barber. Graphic designs are by Dakota Coop. This episode received support from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. It's part of our mini-series that looks into the politics of medicine and medical controversies. The scholarly leads are Professors Maya Goldenberg at the University of Guelph and Maxwell J. Smith at the University of Western Ontario. Yoshiyuki Miyasaka at the University of Guelph provided research. We're also backed by our generous patrons. Join us, join them, go to patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. Thanks for listening. Check back in two weeks. 